Hey, did you know it's almost time for Wartstock? Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 to 7. We'll have a wide variety of live music with headliner Ugochi. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more at wortfm.org. I'll see you there. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Who or what defines history? That is, the preservation and uses of the past, of memory and its value for the present and future. Must the winners always define the telling and understandings of what came before? And what is the value of public and local history from the bottom up? With us today to explore such questions and others underlying his work is James Levy. Levy is a public historian and formerly associate professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. In 2012, Levy initiated the Wisconsin Farms Oral History Project, an ongoing examination of the intersection of race, Wisconsin history, and agriculture. That project eventually grew into a statewide venture involving... excuse me, a statewide venture involving faculty and students from the five UW campuses, along with a diversity of community members. One outcome was the award-winning 2019 traveling exhibition, The Lands We Share. Continuing his interests on the connections between land and race in regard to property, farming, rural-urban dynamics, housing in cities, etc., Levy was instrumental more recently in launching the large-scale collaborative effort currently underway entitled Whose Land? Race, Settlement, and Dispossession in Wisconsin and New York. James Levy, welcome to WRT. It's nice to have you here. Thanks, Alan. Nice to be here. James Levy, I'd like to start at a very basic level. Give our listeners some sense of what you mean when you speak of public history Uh, as something other than and more than largely top-down scholarly and academic historical work. What is public history and what might it include? Well, the the word public being added to history is really traditionally thought of as the audience of history. So one way to think about it is, you know, traditional audiences for historians are students, whether at K through 12, social studies teachers in high schools, et cetera, or college students. And then they have a reading public, you could say. But Public history looks at the audience more broadly. Anybody beyond the classroom would be an audience for public history. So the kinds of things that are traditionally included are museums, historical societies, um, historic sites. Ken Burns' films would be a form of public history. Now websites and podcasts, etc. Um, archives, historic preservation. But um, I like to focus on something that is less traditionally thought of, although more and more in the last few years which is not necessarily the audiences for things that we historians produce for them, but looking at the production and research itself as a community collaborative process. 
So things like oral histories could fit into that category where we're interviewing people and that, you know, you're talking about top-down history. This would be bottom-up history, letting people whose stories are not usually preserved tell their own stories, etc. So what's, what's the purpose or function, as you see it, of public history? I am, I'm many, but it's to engage communities and to break that wall that has gotten probably too tall between universities and scholarship and the outside world. Um, you know, we, we, we have over decades, centuries, I guess you could say, built a, uh, you know, sort of a fetish of, of disciplines and expertise um, that, you know, needs to be challenged. And so in addition to siloing the disciplines themselves is the whole question of what even is expertise. And so I think for people who are not involved in universities, they bring expertise to the table, too, that needs to be valued and and, and thought about. Um, They need to be part of the conversations about what history even is. As you just alluded to, public history is often contested, especially in the current period. It has become an arena that serves dueling and competing ideological and political agendas, often centered on competing uses of public land, public space, the occupation of land, in that context, your work has focused on uh, what is referred to as the ex- excavating untold narratives, stories hidden from view. You mentioned history from the bottom up. Mm. What do you see as the importance of that? Why that? Well, I want to say one thing first about what you just said, which is that to say there are stories that aren't told or stories that are hidden from view without finishing the the rest of that sentence is a little bit inaccurate. This is one of the things that we do in that it's not that people's stories are lost. They always have their own stories and they are told in their families and in their communities. It's more about the who. That's where the audience comes in. And if there is a mainstream or dominant or majority culture, whatever you want to call it, it's that those stories aren't often part of those mainstream narratives. They get codified in textbooks and that are taught in classrooms and that make it into commercials, etc. So Anybody that is interested in equity and justice and working on, in the last few years in particular, this, this you know, explosion of, of engagement in, in racial equity um, has to contend with history, obviously. And so when we do that, I think it's really important that that's a conversation and not something that these so-called scholars or experts um, present to a public as a form of teaching. As, as you were just saying that, I, I thought to myself, quite possibly within listener range here, yeah. and it's global now since we're on the internet, there's right. someone going, uh, here's a guy with an agenda. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> as, if, sure. <laughs> as, as if the other doesn't. Right. There you go. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the answer to that, right? We all have agendas. I mean, I think the, the issue is, is the agenda exclusive? Right? Is the, is the agenda something where you have a very narrow idea of what people should think and you want to impose it on them? But if your agenda is to be inclusive, if your agenda is to, as good teachers do, to, to have a good sense, have your finger on the pulse of what is that sort of mainstream narrative, and therefore you want to come to the other side to open it up, to poke holes in it, not because you take issue with that mainstream narrative whole cloth, but because you want your students and your public to ask questions. If our job is to ask questions and to open up the conversation, then that's an agenda that I have. But, you know, if you're talking about ideology and me trying to, you know, whatever's going on right now throughout the rest of the country world, 
um, you can't pin, you shouldn't be able to pin me to that. And I will, you know, I would talk to anyone about, let's, you think I have an agenda, let's, let's talk. I can show you what I'm up to and see if by the finish, time we finish our conversation, if you still think I have the kind of agenda that you don't agree with. Well, inclusiveness is an agenda, my friend. <laughs> well, right. And, that, and I've, so, you know, certain people have seen those buzzwords, you know, what can be wrong with inclus- inclusivity, diversity, justice, but they're, oh, those are code words. Um, but what if we, what if they're not? What if we're sincerely committed to those ideas? You're listening to public historian James Levy. We will be shortly talking about some of his projects Per usual, we'll open up the phone lines at half past the hour if you want to join in with a conversation. <laughs> can't talk today. Join the conversation with a question, a comment, an observation. Give us a call at 608-256-2001. James Levy, you've been involved in a succession of projects. Mm. How did it all begin for you? What were some of your initial questions? Mm. I mean... I mean, the history for where it began with me is my childhood in terms of my interest in things like race. I grew up in a very integrated, even what could be described as an experiment in racial integration on the east side of Cleveland, Cleveland Heights and Shaker Heights, um, Ohio. Um, But I think what really kind of sprung my interest in this work was when I, after college, my brother and I started a program that was... um, based in storytelling <laughs> and we rode our bicycles across the country for nine months and worked in junior high schools and in that process of being on my bike and riding from Maine down to the deep south to Texas back up and ending up in San Francisco I saw local history local culture in all of its forms in this country and kind of fell in love with I guess what you know in the in the academy is called ethnography um, collecting stories all that. The most money I'd ever spent in my life at that point was for a tape recorder I invested in with a nice mic that I took with me. Um, so that got me, piqued my interest in both history itself and in the sort of engagement with communities and the diversity and the incredible richness of this country. Um, I just, I want to be in, I get turned on by being involved in, in dialogue and, and, and connecting people from very different backgrounds. Um, Talk about talk about the the Wisconsin Farm Farms Oral History Project and what it led to. Sure. So I was hired um, at Whitewater. I came from New York, New York City, um, to teach race and ethnicity. I'm actually trained in African American history, um, but also to build a public history program. So for students. And by the way, this is the other part of public history that's probably worth noting is that you know I come from it from this sort of social change and connection and, you know, that the stuff we talked about. But, but one of the reasons public history is becoming more and more pervasive throughout different universities, which it is, is because there's the other side of it, which is the professionalization side. And this is a way in times when the humanities are under a lot of duress and being challenged by a lot of different people, whether it's someone who's managing a budget or someone who has a political agenda, um, Public history and public humanities are ways to, to say, here are practical things you can do with a history degree besides just teach. Um, so that's kind of partly where it came from. And so I came into Whitewater in 2011 in a moment when they were building such a program. And one of the things that I wanted to do was create an ongoing program that wasn't just classes or internships, which is, which is what it had been before I came, and to have a project that students could work on in an ongoing way. 
The farms part of it was just that I was living in Madison and driving to Whitewater and driving through corn and soy fields and all this beautiful farmland, by the way, and realizing how rural the area was that I was going to. And the more I learned about the history of farming in Wisconsin, the more I realized that it was this incredible opportunity to engage with race because there was these black farming communities in the 19th century that, you know, talk about being forgotten. Most people don't know very much about those. Maybe two of them they know about. Um, Hmong farming, third largest population of Hmong farmers in the country all throughout Wisconsin, et cetera, et cetera, Latino. And then you look at the white people who are farmers and they identify very closely with their European ancestry, whether German or Finnish or whatever it might be. So as someone who taught race in New York and moved to Wisconsin, I found that my students were really uncomfortable, more so than New York, talking about race at all. So my idea was let's, let's talk about farming. Let's make that the centerpiece, and then um, let's get to the race question as a sort of secondary step. And that's, that's where this whole farming project was born. Growing out of um, <clears throat> the Wisconsin Farms Oral History Project uh, came a, a bigger venture, the L- Lands We Share effort. What was, it, what was that, and where did that come from? Well, it was really part of it. I think the op- the sort of the overarching um, auspices, sort of organizational structure, was the lens was the sorry Wisconsin Farms Oral History Project, and that uh, professors in five campuses you mentioned it was Milwaukee, Madison, Whitewater, Oshkosh, and originally Eau Claire. Each of them had a person who was responsible for the project on their campus. So several of us got together and we we had collected over five hundred interviews, a lot coming from Oshkosh. So my closest partner there is Professor Stephen um, Kircher, who does this kind of history, and he's worked with me for 10 years. We're we're good friends. He's he's an amazing historian. Um, He was responsible for starting a whole course on his campus where many of these interviews were collected. We got to the point where we wanted to create uh, something that was more tangible for the public, and so we thought an exhibit would be a really great project that could travel the state But instead of just building an exhibit that would be educational, let's use this as a tool for community conversation. So we actually said the way we framed it was we're going to flip the traditional exhibit. Instead of it being sort of dialogue and and, and research first, we did plenty of that. And then ending with the exhibit, let's use the exhibit as a starting point for conversation. So the way we structured that part was we would plant ourselves in a town for three weeks. The exhibit would go up first. And at the end of those three weeks, we'd have a big community dinner, farm to table, being fed by the farmers in the project, right, with usually a really awesome chef. <clears throat> and then we'd have a conversation about the themes of the project. Uh, so there's a jumping off point. The exhibit itself had interactive, you know, you could fill out cards or write things on boards. I mean, use those as prompts for the conversation. <clears throat> Writing about the Land We Share project, UW historian Nan Enstead talked about what might be described as the rippling effect of the conversations you just alluded to, right? Mm-hmm. Conversations that were engendered by the exhibit and mm-hmm. so on. That what began with the Wisconsin farm and cultural, racial, and ethnic identities of farmers came to encompass a whole range of concerns, such as land and housing loss, mm-hmm. refugees, migrants, and resettlement, mm-hmm. sustainability and climate change, the family farm and the family farm in the era of corporate farming, um, and of course, much, much more. That, as such, the lands we share re- redefined history 
of Wisconsin farming man instead says the project did not so much address commu- a community as call a new community into being. Mm-hmm. I, f- I found that very interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> like, well, that was it was it was yes, it was a nice nice description, and I think that would call that an ambition of ours. Maybe, you know. Um, we're still in that process of, of of getting there. I do think communities. People often say the community in singular, and I always take issue with that. I think it's always plural, and so a community can be something that pops up, you know. And then the question is, when it's naturally going to go away? How do you sustain it if that community was valuable? But all she's right in that. Lots of issues came to the fore in the process of collecting oral histories, putting the exhibit together, having those conversations. That. To me, the biggest thing I was reminded of is that whereas the lands we share, I mean, think about that title, lands we share, it's a very kumbaya idea, right? Which is fine. That We all have connections to the land was the implicit argument. We all have that in our, if not ourselves, in our ancestry. Um, but it didn't have questions of power. And why people are where they are, who owns land and who doesn't, has a lot to do with the long history that needs to be addressed. That was the, the the sort of origins of this project I'm doing now, the Whose Land Project, which gets directly to dispossession and displacement narratives and how we, we sort of engage with that. If you're talking about building community or bringing communities together, you're talking about building bridges of solidarity, new, new solidarities. Did you have that in mind initially? Absolutely. didn't always work. But... Um, I mean, the great examples were, for example, we had a final gala at the end of the, the whole, in fact, it was right here in Madison at the Public Library. And we had a panel of people from various farms that we had highlighted. And at the end, the, uh, a group who had been running a community garden in Milwaukee, Northside Milwaukee, predominantly black neighborhood, Metcalf Park, was on the panel, as was a woman who ran this white corn, traditional white corn growers group, Ohelaku in um, Oneida. And after they both talked, they hadn't met before, they kind of beelined to each other and started talking about how could they bring kids from Milwaukee out to Oneida and vice versa, right? That idea, again, if you take a common history, we're all linked to food in some way. We're all linked to the land in some way. Most of us have ancestry that were farmers somewhere back far enough. If you use that as a starting point in common ground, then finding the different regions across the state, whether urban, rural, or the different communities defined by culture, ethnicity, et cetera, and connecting them, there's power in that. And absolutely is what we were trying to do. Now, that takes tending, like any good garden, and we could do better, but that is still, as I said, our ambition. Again, you're listening to James Levy, public historian, number of projects he's been engaged with or initiated in some sense uh, um, on, well, rural and urban Wisconsin building communities, uh, the disappearance of communities. 608-256-2001. If you want to join with a question, a comment, an observation for our guest today, again, 608-256-2001. We could open up the lines a little bit early if you have a question or comment. Let's turn to the latest, that is the Whose Land Project. First off, James, please perhaps provide us with some broader historical context. 
the longer historical arc that sets the stage for the project, that bigger picture. Sure. So the history that we're engaging with is the connection between New York State and Wisconsin. And it's an interesting one. And a, a lot of people in this state know it, but a lot of people don't, including me, you know, ac- however many years ago. Sort of the irony is that I became one of those people who moved from New York to Wisconsin. Um, but, you know, as I said, thematically, we wanted to get into displacement narratives. And one thing that we knew very early on in working with our Oneida partners is that was their story, um, that the Oneida part of the Haudenosaunee Confederation in New York, 200 years ago, a, a group, a large group, big portion, not all, of Oneida came to Wisconsin. You can argue about how voluntary that was, and that's its own complicated history, but they came to Wisconsin, ultimately got Menominee land. Again, contentious histories about how much they should have and did get in the end, and of course went through the whole process over the next 100 years of losing everything in terms of land claims by the early 20th century, down to a couple thousand acres. Um, but and this is the year they celebrate their 200th anniversary in Wisconsin, the big celebrations this summer up at the United Nation. That began our story from New York to Wisconsin. And the reason it happened in those years has a lot to do with the broader development of the whole country. And when lands were, quote, unquote, opening up, that, that troubling phrase having exactly, you know, to, to do with Indian removal or, you know, and, and policies in the federal government. But if you look at the broader history of New York and Wisconsin, you also find that over the next 30, 40, 50 years, the amount of people who are moving east to west, to Midwest, who specifically came from New York State to Wisconsin is kind of breathtaking. There was a statistic I read that mid-century, 1850, state census reported that one out of every three Wisconsinites, U.S.-born Wisconsinites, was born in New York State, who was actually living in Wisconsin, a third. That number would be the same in 1890 for German-born by 1890, but in the mid-century, it was New York-born. And so there is an interesting, we found this an interesting opportunity to talk about, okay, if we're talking about dispossession, you have to talk about settlement. That's the other half of it. Why do people, and how do people get to where they go, and how do they get that land ultimately? What's the historical processes through which that's happened, right? So we wanted to see that side of the story. The New Yorkers came over, but also we were thinking, you know, probably not just white people who came over. Um, so the stories of these black farming settlements I mentioned in the 19th century, the famous ones are people coming from Virginia, Kentucky, from the South. What about this lateral movement of black farmers, free black farmers from the East Coast? And sure enough, I mean, we're in the midst of research right now, but we have found black farmers in New York moving to Wisconsin in those years as we found other indigenous farmers, not just with a group and a nation, but on their own moving to Wisconsin. So there's something there that allows us to talk about movement and migration and settlement, which is a sort of a window into this question of how displacement works in the first place. The effects of all that are immense, have been immense historically. Cumulatively, these patterns of removal and foreclosure that was part of the process have led to a to multi-generational losses of wealth and opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the erasure of black and indigenous history. That erasure comes of 
memory of that I see your project excavating, yes. re- reviving, uh, bringing, bringing back to the surface or the front uh, is crucial. You not only People are not only displaced physically, geographically, uh, but lose the memory, their, yeah. hist- their history. Absolutely, you you nailed it. But again, I would I would also say that a lot of those individuals haven't. They're in family histories. We're not the ones excavating it, but we are coming in with access to public, with access to broader audiences, and and, and engaging in that process. And I'm not saying that that everybody knows that history, even in the communities. But that's that is the point to take what many people don't even know about or have forgotten, as you say, the memories, the the archi- the, the artifacts that maybe are in their basement. They have no idea how that connects to the broader picture, the history itself, and yes, putting it back into the conversation. So, I mean, if you just look at the black experience in this country, and we can talk about some of my partners in Milwaukee as an example, you can trace people from rural areas in Wisconsin. Right, have their own farm, they own their own land. The peak of land ownership of African Americans nationwide was around 1910, 1920, depending on what um, what measurements you're using. Um, and then this incredible land loss. Right, you can look at people, black families in rural Wisconsin, gradually moving to cities, gradually being pushed out, sometimes violently, often through threat of violence. And moving from town to town and eventually ending up in places like Madison, Wisconsin, or out of state. And then you look at, okay, now a community rebuilds itself. They have these vibrant communities. And even when those communities died out, people will come back from Madison and Milwaukee and other cities to have annual picnics that sort of celebrated the old community in that farming community, which by the 1920s and 30s was like basically all white to this day. Then you go to a place like Milwaukee, and you see some of those same communities, then again, a second or third wave of displacement, famous one in, in Milwaukee happened on Walnut Street, or, you know, which was we know as the Black Wall Street of Walnut Street. Various factors, one of them being the building of the highway, destroys an entire community. People move further west and further north. But even to this day, there are multiple displacements. If you look at individual families through things like evictions, People don't have the means. They have houses that are falling apart because they're renters and the landlords aren't taking care of them. And then what happens when the house is condemned as quote-unquote blighted? Point being, there are these multiple displacements that are still ongoing. And for us to, as you say, excavate those histories and put them into a larger context, I think is, is where a good conversation about that has to start. Wisconsin and New York, as you've pointed out, sheer not just agricultural traditions, traditions of migration and settlement, resettlement, displacement, <clears throat> but also you use the term, and, and somewhere along the line I came across, uh, histories of wh- white settler colonialism, yeah, of uh, inter- the interconnected histories of, as well as the internet, uh, I'm tripping over the tongue today, sorry folks, Interconnected histories of abolitionism in the 19th century. Mm. Um, <clears throat> right. I thought about, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the history of Wisconsin progressivism. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and the history we get is it comes, it has origins in part in European social democracy, 
uh, German immigrants bringing right. socialism to Milwaukee, right. uh, and so on and so forth, adaptation by progressives like Bob LaFollette and so on. Uh, <clears throat> but we're talking here about an earlier seeding on the land right. of uh, abolitionists. Mm-hmm. That, that, uh, I had never made that connection before, that longer arc. Yeah, absolutely. Well, by, and by the way, if you I don't know if you've ever had, do you know Emilio Del Torre in, in, uh, in Milwaukee? I mean, he'll tell you that the socialist history also goes back quite a bit further, and the, the Turner Hall is, right? Um, but sure, I think that, and that's one of our questions, is we know that there were these intentional communities, sometimes linked to religious communities like free will Baptists and things like that, who also were committed to abolition of slavery, um, many of them, again, coming from New York. So you look at Burnt Over District, you look at Frederick Douglass's trajectory and where he was regionally, and you can see connections that he had coming to Wisconsin. So there's, you know, the Republican Party likes to, to you know, so I'd say that Ripon was the, the where, you know, their party was founded. Um, but that's based in some of that movement, the sort of progressive versions of that 19th century. Um, and so to me, what's fascinating is how does land fit into that? Like the idea of moving to some place where, again, to use quotation marks, where there was land opening up that wasn't expensive for certain people, how does that turn into then ideology? Finding land and helping to found a political party devoted in its early stages to ending slavery, um, that's to me fascinating. How does the practice of farming, religious and ideological ideas, and and then political ones that were, as as you're describing them, progressive, how do all those things wrap together? Um, Absolutely part of this project. And then what do they morph into? over the, the ensuing decades. See, um, of course, the great historian uh, of, well, yeah, excuse me, of the Civil War and in the pre-war years, uh, Eric Foner, yeah. long ago in, in a book, he had Free Labor, Free Soil, Free Men. Right. That puts a, a whole different gloss on, or what we're discussing today, puts a whole different gloss on free land. Was it free? <laughs> Free it for does. Whom? It does. And free for whom? And even the anti-slavery advocates, you know, many of them wanted their free land and the slave power was their enemy. Didn't mean that they were opening up their land to black, free black families all the time, you know? I mean, that the their own politics around race were kind of all over the map. Again, we're talking with James Levy, public historian, a freewheeling conversation mm-hmm. around a whole bunch of issues related to whose land, dispossession, uh, land and who has it, who does it, and who knows the story. Right. right. Uh, 256-608-256-2001. Give us a call if you want to join in the conversation. James Levy, you've pointed to pointed out that whose land, the whose land project now underway will focus much more specifically on land dispossession on the histories of displacement of peoples, and on land loss. These are issues not commonly taken up by what might be referred to as mainstream public history, most of which often has been the story of elites, uh, the successful. Are we talking here about some radical departure from what is often thought of as public history? I don't know about that. I don't know if I'd agree with what you just said. I I, I raised it as a question. Yeah, no, (laughs) that's fair enough. I just, I think a lot of historians for a long time, and maybe even forever, have really been looking at counter-narratives and have been interested in in race questions. 
for for a long time. I, I guess I would say that um, maybe what I'm what we're trying to do that is less common is the collaboration part. Talk about that. So that the idea that that history does not require PhD expertise always. That's not to say that that's not worth anything. There is a lot of training that goes into that, as you know and I know. Um, and and so there are methods we can bring to the table, but but the idea that there are other people with their own form of, of expertise, knowledge, memory, obviously, um, not to mention connection to other people who do have that memory, who may not share it with PhD professors all the time, right? That, that this is part, has to be part of the conversation and, and sort of thinking about both how the sources can be more expansive, but also how the very framing of the stories with those sources can be done collaboratively with communities and with descendants of the people we're talking about. Talk about some of the collaborations that you've helped to build around these projects, especially now the new one. Absolutely. So, um, you know, we, we, there's sort of three tiers of partners we have. It's, you know, still, even though I'm, you know, now at, at running a nonprofit to do all this called the Race and Place Coalition, I'm still working very closely with students and faculty at many different campuses from UW sort of system campuses to New York, you know, this uh, Cornell, um, Hunter College in New York City, et cetera. The second tier of partnerships are with cultural institutions like historical societies, who we like to think are sort of those who at least have the ambition to ground themselves in the history locally of their own communities and know their communities well. And then we have activist groups who are um, involved in these issues. And that, and when I say activists, I don't mean so much politics. I mean people who are engaged in ac- actual action and engaged in trying to make direct change. That could be a portion of or an entire uh, a tribal nation, or it could be like in Milwaukee, a, a housing coalition and, and neighborhood group um, like we've worked with who are trying to create a community land trust and, and, and keep people from being evicted from their homes. Um, what we do, I think the way that this works best is when we let them lead. So I come to the table with potential partners and I say, here's what we've done in the past. Here are the tools we have. We have students. We have knowledge in how to conduct historical research. We have, you know, audio recorders to do oral histories. How can any of these tools work toward your own mission? And when we find a match, then we've got something. And and that's how a partnership begins. 608-2560. We have a caller just come up on the line. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Uh, greetings from San Francisco. All uh, right. Yeah, yeah. I heard you talking about trying to get some common sense out in the world. And I was just going to raise, uh, you, you're all familiar with the social contract. That's kind of what you were just talking about. Right. You know, the social bond that holds us all together. But uh, the other idea, uh, the ways that people were tricked into obeying were through the uh, the ancient three estates. And are you all familiar with them? You're going back to, 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 to Greek th- thought and theory? Are you going well, back to Locke even, and, and uh, some of the Scottish philosophers? Well, um, the the that there were the king, the military, and the okay. church. Oh, the estates. Three, That's what it means. Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And so they were, you know, the king had his way of keeping people in line. The military has its way of doing it. And then the church has its way of doing it. And based upon what you're born into, if you're, re- if you're raised uh, in a religious family, you're more likely to be kind of kept in league with, 
certain statements or precepts or orders or terrifying notions, you know, like uh, if you don't obey, you're going straight to hell. Uh, Call military. Call well, yeah, go ahead. Is this going somewhere? Could you come to make a... Well, you were looking for some solutions, right? And just recommend and keep track of the, the ways that the milita- the ancient three estates are affecting our lives to this day. Thank mm. you. Thank mm. you. So, you know, and I think the way it would apply to what we're doing now is if those estates are translated into modes of thought, they kind of shape how people see the world. And maybe that's kind of what he's getting at. If you think about religion, for example. Um, Coming back to the Whose Land Project, talk about how you see it operating. That is certainly the importance of community conversations that we touched on several times is fundamental. Um, There's also teams of researchers, Mm -hmm. Wisconsin and New York. Go Mm -hmm. into that a little bit. Like the mechanics of it? Yeah, sure. Well, Well, I'll say uh, one thing I should say about where this is all moving and one of the reasons that I've kind of devoted myself to this full time is that, you know, ever since, well, forever, but in recent years, George Floyd or whoever we want to mark the beginning of this resurgence, there's been a lot of conversation about reparations, okay? And that also may be a coded word that certain listeners will be turned off by. But 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 I think we can all agree that there are tensions between rural and urban. There are tensions across certain racial and cultural lines. And so one of the things that people are working right on now, right now, is healing, dialogue, um, restorative justice, truth and reconciliation. These are all different phrases for similar kind of work that we feel is really important to getting to that, to the sort of broader solutions around land in particular in our case. So the dialogue is key to that. And we really believe that history, understanding history, and then turning those local and even individual histories, i.e. memories, into stories are great ways to bring people together. So the way that this works on the mechanical level, right, in terms of, of the, the, the organization of it, is we will have st- undergraduates and grad students from various partner campuses who intern for us, sometimes they're paid to do work for us, who are doing anything from researching land records, city directories, census, to, to provide that historical sort of data for the community partners. We will have professors sometimes involved with us in doing that. We may get resources like archival um, uh, documents from historical societies or universities. With our community partners, then, we may, as I said, sit down and identify what they want us to do, and then we'll build, say, a steering committee of all of those parties that then think about doing something like community archives project, where we say we're looking at land. Let's say we're in a city, like in New York City and East Brooklyn, and they're trying to build a land trust. We say there's been displacement. This is where we come in. Let's do the research with you. Let's create a, a group of people who are collecting oral histories in the community. Let's find out if people have photographs, stories, documents, letters from their grandparents, their aunts and uncles. Let's reproduce these lost histories in these areas to create an archive. And through that, through that process, along the way, you are bringing people in partnership with each other from different backgrounds, different ages. At the same time, you're building this archive of stories that kind of puts those that history back into the conversation. And then the conversation part is, with this, can you have public meetings? <clears throat> can you have a big, uh, we've done this before, an archive day where people bring their stuff to us. We have scanners. We collect it. We've used this thing called memory mapping where we've put 
huge maps of, say, five-block radius of their neighborhood on a big wall, and we've given them Sharpies and Post-it notes to, to, to draw in places that they have been lost or destroyed. We recoup this, and in the process, then we bring people together and say, let's have dialogue. And that's, that's, to me, where we get to the dialogue part that hopefully can lead to healing and even solution finding um, in the longer term. As I'm sitting here listening to you describe this. It's not just, well, it's a community building process inherent in it, but there's also a, a democratization mm. of mm. who gets to do history. Yes. Who, who decides what is history, what is important, and, and so on. Something that's lost, you know, both of us historians, you know, how many times we run into kids say, oh, I, I can't, I, I hate history, yeah. or they're plugged into the history channel. Right, right. Like Tony exactly. Soprano. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Doug says we have a, another caller on the line. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, uh in 1974-75, I was already a young man, and at that time, a group of Menominee Indians had seized an abbey near Shawano, Wisconsin, Gresham, Wisconsin, uh, the Alexian Brothers', Alexian Brothers uh, novitiate, which was largely vacant. It was mainly young men, and they were saying it's vacant, it should be turned into a hospital or into an educational facility. They, they quotes, occupied it for 34 days. And I don't want to get too far off topic here, but it's part of Wisconsin history. Yeah. And I've always had stuck in my memory the idea that the Native people uh, called Indians, Menominee Indians, uh, occupied a, a religious facility and... It took the National Guard to come in as a kind of, I guess, state police force to basically say, uh, you have no role here on this, in this place or on this land. I'm wondering if that kind of bit of history fits within the purview of your project. Thank you, caller. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. I mean, right now we're working closely with Oneida, but obviously Menominee history, as I said, plays into that directly. That kind of story is absolutely an understanding how and why that happened in the broader history so people don't just write it off as sort of an illegal act or an act of, you know, of, of even of violence. Like, there are many stories of that kind of repossession of land. And, you know, the story we're telling that's, that's parallel to that is the occupation of the Coast Guard station in Milwaukee by a group of people from various tribes, although led many of them, the leaders were Oneida. Um, it was unoccupied, it's like Alcatraz. It was sort of out of use. It was land. It was a symbolic act. And they actually got a school out of it. And so I think it was it was righteous. Yeah. Yeah, you you, re- you referenced this naval, this occupation that I, I don't know about. Uh, uh, hey, right. I don't know about it. Right. Uh, but you also referenced very quickly, like Alcatraz in the popular memory being five minutes long often enough. Um, back up a little bit on that. Tell, tell that story or, or what, you, what you will. Well, I just, I mean, just in, in, in brief, I mean, Alcatraz, the prison at that point wasn't in use. And this was, what was it, 1971? Do I have the date right? 
This was part of the AIM movement, the American Indian movement, which came out of really inspired much by civil rights and black power in particular. Um, and, you know, it was a... Dis- they were committed to disruption in the, in the best sense of the word, I think. I mean, AIM... People can call these organizations radical, and then they think they can write them off. But, but you know, when the federal government has had the history it's had of, of not only dispossessing people of land, but you were getting to this earlier, dispossessing them of culture and identity and practices and, and forcing people not to, to speak their own language or even urban relocation in the mid-century, um, you know, people forcibly sort of moved into cities and what happens to, to native culture then. People who were involved in AIM were, were maybe more impatient and maybe in a, in a righteous way in the late 60s and early 70s. And so a group of people, uh, Native, Indigenous activists, occupied Alcatraz for, and I'm, I'm, you know, as a historian, I should know the exact time of it. It was a number of weeks, I think. Does that sound right? And, and um, got news, as they hoped to, and it was pretty harmless. Um, nobody was hurt. And... Um, but that kind of occupying land is making a statement that you, you can say we're taking over land, but if this was indigenous land that was already taken over, let's really talk about what, who's occupying whose land. I think that's what that's what some of these actions get to. The lines are lighting up, as is so often the case late in the hour. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Oh, Alan, Charlie. Um, I just wanted to bring up the role of the rural newspapers and what I've seen in the 26 years that I've worked in the rural newspapers in southwest Wisconsin and what, it, what, what it's exposed me to in terms of these topics. Um, you know, you talk about, like, the New York thing. The first thing I learned about the New York thing in southwest Wisconsin is Nelson Dewey came from New York and built a four-story hotel in Cassville in 1831. It's still sitting down there. Um, then became the first governor. Um, I also learned about people who believe their family members ran a uh, underground railroad uh, outpost in Boscobel, and um, and of course the Black Hawk War. I learned a lot about the Black Hawk War. Right. Um, so yeah, I just want to like ask your uh, guests what the role if he ever looks at uh, rural weekly newspapers. Yeah, uh, that stuff is gold. Uh, it's the ones that are preserved is the question, you know. And when you you get hot on a trail in a rural newspaper, just when you think you get in the bottom, you see one article and you want to see what happened next, and then they don't have that issue. I mean, if you go back far enough, it's hard. They're scattered, um, you know, scattered collections. But, yes, we've been in Jefferson County in particular. We spent a lot of time going to county uh, historical societies and town historical societies and town libraries. Um, there's more and more digitization of this stuff, which is great. So some of my students have gone online and just found newspaper articles. But um, it's a great, so I, I totally agree with you. And by the way, I'm writing a book with the guy I mentioned, Stephen Kircher, about race and farming in Wisconsin with UW Press. And um, these are the kinds of sources that we're, we're really excited about digging up. Thanks for the call, Charlie. Good, good hearing your voice from out in the hinterland. Thank you, Charlie. I want to come back to, I think it's one of the kernels of, of at least what I've read so far about about the projects, and that is that that issue again of the erasure of memory mm. uh, that accompanies the displacement from the land. 
I'm wondering if we could take that deeper. That is the interaction of historical erasure and physical displacement. Um, and, and what it has meant for so many, so many, many communities, so many groups in, within our society, ethnic groups, racial groups, uh, indigenous peoples, and so on. Great question. And I, and I think about it a lot, actually. So one of the things to say is, how does history get preserved in the first place? And so being someone who's in the town, right, if, that's where, if local history is where we keep, you know, a lot of these memories and, and, and archives, is going to have a, who's there is going to have a lot to do with who gets remembered, obviously. So descendants, whoever is there, the people who are like them, who share their history, who they can recognize. But there's another layer to that, too, is that what institutions are still there as well? Banks, schools, churches. So the origin stories of those are linked to founders often, and those are the histories that will often be preserved. So somebody who was not part of that process, and that process has everything to do with, you know... With power. Power. There you go. Let's just keep it at that. Absolutely. Then people who may have been there and had a presence may not be remembered in the same way. Think about buildings themselves. Those who build the buildings, right? I, I give this example in something I just wrote where I think about Jefferson County, to use that example again, and I, in our project, we went, we found a farm we worked with, German immigrants came... The family historian, there's always one, right, who keeps all the pictures of the family, all her cousins and ancestors. She had hundreds of photographs. And the photographs, what was magic about them to us was that you could see a photograph from 1895 of a schoolhouse and then walk to the property. And there was the schoolhouse behind the bushes kind of grown over. And there's something about the, you know, the persistence of time in that that is really evocative. They built that schoolhouse. They could show pictures that they were there. There is something in how memory kind of repeats itself and, and, and is preserved in that process. People who leave or are pushed off the land, often their places don't get preserved because people are not invested in it, or sometimes they get destroyed, or sometimes they get repurposed and people don't even remember that they were the one. I make this reference to in some of the black farming communities in the Southwest, there was a tradition of round barn building among some of the black farmers. They built these famous round barns. They weren't the only ones. But some of, a lot of them have been just like deteriorated and fallen apart. And others now people use them and they don't even know that that was originally designed by two black brothers, let's say, who built that barn. So yeah, you need advocates of history that are still living to keep that history going. This gets us, you know, you just touched on uh, my next question in actuality. Uh, that is the goal or goals plural, of the Whose Land Project. What do, you, what do you hope to see? What do you hope to, to achieve? Well, I, I, I think we hope to engender dialogue, thought. We want to bring people together from all sides of this settlement and dispossession question. So we want to bring white settler descendants together with Native, Black, other communities. We want them to talk to each other. We want to raise broad public awareness about the history that it exists, go deep, so people can think about the, the land they walk on, the ground they walk on, all the layers of history that have preceded them. The things don't just happen naturally. They happen for reasons that are very his historical and have to do with things like you said, power. And we want people to learn about that. We want us all to think about that. And I think that land pre presents a great vehicle for that because we can see and touch it and stand on it. Um, 
I think in the bigger, bigger picture, as this goes on for years, which I intended to, that those stories get mapped out over years and broaden out into more and more regions. Um, and ultimately, we can play some small part in this question of, okay, if, if people think there has been injustice of any kind along the lines of land and property, then what do we do now? And we don't know yet the best answers. It's not just simply, here's my land back, although that could be part of it. But there are many solutions that are possible, and we want to be helped to be part of that conversation for kind of brainstorming and envisioning what those solutions might be. You've talked about the shared understanding of land justice. You just touched on it in actuality. Mm-hmm. Um, in the past and the future, um, as I was working through this material, I was thinking, yeah, that's really gets right down the pedal to the metal. Uh, this issue of land justice. We have about a minute left. Um, we could leave that there because I want you to talk about the project itself, how people might get in touch, websites uh, yeah, or yeah, whatever. Sure. Any <laughs> All that stuff that I never remember to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're working on it, and we're going to relaunch our site um, in about a month, hopefully. But um, you can go to read about this project. It's called Whose Land, and it's a very simple URL. It's whoseland, one word, dot org. Whoseland.org. Um, and they'll, there's more about the project, and if you go to the Get Involved link, you can send us an email. You can see ways to do anything from get involved to donate or, or whatever. But we do, you know, we do want to be what you just said. You know, we want to be part of that process of, of figuring out what land justice even is in the first place. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming in today, James Levy. Uh, I've had other public historians on in the past couple, couple of years. Uh, and Going into them, I think, well, I wonder how this will go. And I always come away very impressed and, and a little bit energized uh, by what folks such as yourself do. Um, I'm being told we have a minute left. Any for, any adieus? Any? <laughs> well, I just want to thank you. This is great to be able to talk. Alan, it's wonderful to talk to another historian. Um, and I do hope we're growing. It's, it's very much a, a project in process. And so I, anyone who's interested and they want to learn more, I hope that you will reach out to us. Uh, my email is levyj at uww.edu. That's my professional email. And thank you very much, Alan. Well, thank you, James Levy. Uh, I want to thank our engineer, our producer. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. I want to thank our callers, of course, and you, our listeners. Uh, I'll be speaking with you next week. Frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground Another pirate station We bring the truth to places Truth is never heard before We bring the sound communication about